Amen. All right, our text this morning, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 31. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, And it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And a hush falls over the crowd, right? Um, All right, spicy meatball for us to handle this morning. Couple of verses on a dreary morning that are a bit like bringing up politics at the Thanksgiving lunch table. Uh, This is going to require careful attention on our parts and much grace from the Father. As we are smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount by this point, we've seen Jesus' effort to orient those who are listening to him, his disciples, and the concentric circle around them to what life in the kingdom is like. We've gone to great lengths over the past four weeks to communicate that this is not entrance requirements to the kingdom. This is not God saying you do this and do this and do this and you qualify, you get in. But this is the defined marks of kingdom citizens. This is what the demarcation should look like of those who are kingdom citizens of the world versus kingdom citizens in God's new kingdom under his rule and reign. We've also seen that these these are heart marks, not necessarily or first and foremost behavioral marks, but these are heart marks that the Spirit changes and cultivates in those who are saved by God's grace. The first two that we considered last week, anger and lust, are difficult in their own right, but when we get to the topic of divorce and remarriage, the temptation at the very outset of this passage is to read it through the lens of our personal experience and the but what abouts that color our perspective on this issue. But what about my divorce that happened 20 years ago before I was a Christian. My parents lived through a horrible marriage and they stayed together for the sake of the kids and I think it would have been better if they had just split up. What about that? These but what abouts reveal a common faulty orientation for us all in determining our actions. I would suggest to you that the starting point makes all the difference. And the temptation for all of us is to erroneously start with our own experience and filter God's word through the lens of that experience. And if you come to the topic of divorce and remarriage with that posture, you are going to get fundamentally awry very quickly. Rather, what we are instructed to do as as kingdom citizens is filter our experience through God's word. That God's word is the fundamental orienting place for us, and our experience gets colored based on that. Case in point would be another place that this passage or this topic is brought up in Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bible open, flip over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we'll, we'll go back and forth between these two passages. But in Matthew 19, we see a more full-orbed discussion of the topic of divorce and remarriage, which reveals to us a couple of things. One, whatever Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is not giving an exhaustive treatment on this topic. 
We have other places that the scriptures are mentioning this, and it's important to note that Jesus isn't trying to tease out all the but what abouts in these two verses. Secondly, it reveals to us that this was a big question that was on the forefront of people's minds then as it is now. The issue of divorce and remarriage is a fundamental orienting posture of citizens of the kingdom of the world, citizens of the kingdom of God. And it reveals that this is a sticky issue. Two verses don't summarize Jesus' claims on this. He revisits it. And where one lands on this issue is likely going to tick people off, as it did in Jesus' day. Most think that Jesus is attempting, to, that the Pharisees and the scribes are attempting to trap Jesus by his interpretation of this, particularly since his boy John the Baptist has just pointed out the king's divorce and remarriage and faulty arrangement there, and most think that the scribes and Pharisees are trying to get Jesus in the same beheaded state of the boy John the Baptist. And so they come up to him in verse 1, I'm sorry, in verse 3, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they test him, saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, I want you to consider this question at the outset. You see the heart of the Pharisee coming through just in the question. Their skin-deep obedience that we talked about last week that lacked a heart comes to Jesus asking the question, where's the line? Is it lawful for me to divorce my wife, oh, and by the way, for any cause? This is the same kind of question that you get if you've ever worked with high school students asking questions about sexual sin before marriage. Where's the line? Give me some boundaries on this. Attempting to, through a me-centered posture of our experience, interpret what is the line of our behavior. And it exposes the faulty orientation that we have with who says what is right and what is wrong. Consider this from a prominent Christian author writing on the subject of divorce. He says this, The basis for divorce among disciples is precisely the same as the basis for marriage. Where it is the case that the persons involved in the marriage would be substantially better off if the marriage were dissolved, the law of love dictates that a divorce should occur. Let me, it's 9 a.m. in the morning, so let me read that again for you, okay? Prominent Christian author, prominent bestseller list, where it is the case that the persons involved in a marriage would be substantially better off if the marriage were dissolved, the law of love dictates that a divorce should occur. Now, what's wrong with this claim? Well, many things, but chief among them is the location of authority. Rather than God as the final arbitrator of right and wrong, this posture places men and women as the sole determinants of what should be done in any given situation. Frail, finite people with a limited perspective on what is and what could be get to weigh the current situation and based on the law of love determine whether they should stay or get out. This is disastrous for our orientation to obedience to God and for marriages. 
We are terrible arbitrators of what is right and wrong. Me-centered posture gets us in trouble every time. Now, it's easy to single out divorce here, but consider the number of times and the various issues when we're prone to the same me-centered orientation and decisions that we face every single day. God's counsel on divorce should give us pause when we consider any issue under authority. That what matters isn't how I tease this out. It doesn't matter my experience. What matters is God and God's word on this topic and submitting to his supreme authority. And so how does Jesus respond in verse 4? He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, that's a spicy meatball of its own right in our culture, right? Like, clear gender delineation that God created before sin ever entered the conversation. And then he said, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So notice, before we go any further, what Jesus does. He shifts the orientation from a man-centered perspective on these issues to a God-centered perspective. And he says, God's created design for marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment. Period. This is God's design. Without any equivocation on his part, he says, let not man separate. He is the architect of marriage, and he gets to define and determine its boundaries and its permanence. And he says, one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Period. And he has defined what marriage is meant to be. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. These words in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is pointing back to the book of Genesis, God's created design. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So he says that marriage, this life, one woman, one man, lifetime commitment, is meant to be a picture of God's love for his people. Not a perfect picture, an incomplete picture, but the closest human approximation So the way that God loves his church is meant to be manifest in this lifetime marriage commitment. And how does God relate to his people? The Old Testament is clear. Let's consider this from Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget his covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He remembers his covenant. He stays faithful to love his people. In 1 Kings 8, verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands to heaven, and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, keeping your covenant 
and showing your steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. God is faithful to his covenant promises to never leave or abandon his people. Need an Old Testament picture of this? Look no further than the story of Hosea and Gomer, right? God saying, I'm going to put my love on display by asking this prophet to marry a prostitute and not merely to take her into relationship, but as she continues in her adulterous ways to continue to receive her back. Why? Because I want to put on display the way I love my people. It's a never giving up love. Consider the New Testament counsel in John 10, 28. I've given them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God's people are permanently trusted to his love, never to be snatched out by anyone or anything. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8, God, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful to do what he has promised. Or Hebrews 13, 5, where the writer says simply, God's promise to never leave you or forsake you. A moment's consideration of these claims reveals that this type of love is a sheer act of God's grace. Humans transgress their covenant agreement with God consistently, and if anyone has a hard marriage, it is God to his church. You will never have a harder marriage than God does in loving his consistently, persistently adulterous people. Yet God's covenant to his people remains sure. Sin transgresses the covenant, but it does not sever it. And while God threatens divorce, writing a certificate of divorce to his people in the Old Testament, it seems that this claim is meant to startle his people to return to covenant faithfulness. He never ultimately abandons them. He remains true to his covenant promises. Meaning, in any marriage... This is the fundamental orienting place. A better question for us all than when is divorce an option is to shift the perspective and ask the question, what best puts the faithful love on display? What best demonstrates God's ever-faithful commitment to his church? This reveals that the most God-glorifying action in any marriage, is to reject divorce as an option, persevere through hard times, and allow God to portray his ever-faithful love through his people, for his people, through a hard marriage. This is the God-glorifying response to issues of divorce and remarriage. This is likely why Matthew places the larger teaching of divorce and remarriage immediately following Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 on radical forgiveness. The 70 times 7 type of forgiveness. It seems that Matthew has oriented this teaching directly following those claims of reconciliation in the church and 70 times 7 type forgiveness to show that his posture is lifelong permanence for marriage then the people do what my assumption is you're doing right now. They say, but what about? 
Verse 7, they said to him, well, why then did Moses give, command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But it was not so from the beginning. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question about divorce in the Old Testament, particularly God's verdict on divorce as revealed through Moses, the great lawgiver. This passage that they're pointing to is from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'll read it. If you're taking notes, you can merely mark it and turn to it later. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. There Moses says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, it's a little bit hard to play the tracing game of who, what are we talking about here? Who's wife and what happened and where's the scenario going? What is important for you to note here, two important things that Jesus does in Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8, in regards to this Old Testament policy of certificates of divorce. First thing he does is he points out that Moses did not command divorce, but rather permitted a legal policy or certificate to ensure care for a woman being divorced in a culture where being without a husband would have equaled her decimation. So he institutes a practice that would have cared for one who was being put out by her husband. More importantly, Jesus points out that this was not God's design from the beginning, but rather a manifestation of the hardness of the human heart. Divorce, this practice, this certificate of divorce, then is God's allowance for a sin-broken world. It's not the way that he created it before sin, but it's an allowance that is made, Moses, for an ongoing practice to put boundaries on an ongoing practice in a world where hardness of heart is on display. D.A. Carson, a prominent New Testament scholar, Bible scholar, writes this, both Matthew and Mark, we'll point to this text in a minute, show that Jesus taught that Moses' concession reflected not a true creation ordinance, but the hardness of men's hearts. Divorce is not part of the Creator's perfect design. Therefore, any view of divorce and remarriage that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not have already been done overlooks a basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but it's always evidence of sin, the hardness of the human heart. And if you have been touched by divorce, you know the reality of this. Divorce, regardless of how you slice and dice some but-what-about issues, 
is always disastrous. It is always a demonstration of sin run amok, and it has crazy consequences. So long before we lean into the but what abouts and embrace some manifestations of this in a sin-broken world, we should have great pause, red lights blaring. This is a manifestation of sin, and it is going to be disastrous. And so then in verse 9, we come to a but what about. And I say to you, this is Jesus writing, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is almost a repeat, it's almost synonymous with what was said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus there says, everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it's one thing to emphasize that Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teaching that marriage ought to be a lifelong permanent one flesh bond, that ought to never be broken. But does this claim mean that marriage can never be broken? The scriptures actually tell us that the marriage bond is breakable. If you were losing some focus and needing to come back, yes, I said the marriage bond is breakable. The scriptures are clear that there is at least one thing that does break the marriage bond, and that is death. Death of a spouse breaks the marriage bond. Paul makes this point quite clearly in Romans 7. A married woman is bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Or again in 1 Corinthians 7, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Notice, again, a lack of equivocation on the topic of what qualifies pre-death. He says she is bound, this marriage relationship, apart from death. In the case of death of the spouse, the partner is free, should he or she choose to remarry another person, but only in the Lord, as would be the counsel of anyone who is getting married, right? Only in the Lord. There's another off-sided mention in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth about what may break the marriage bond. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord, meaning he's not repeating a statement that Jesus made. He's giving, that doesn't mean this lacks any authority here. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any, woman has a, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's a strange passage, right? Once again, I want you to note the clear, consistent stance on divorce in this passage and the context to which Paul is writing. This is the spread of the early church, people coming to faith. And the scenario that's presented here is one person converting to Christianity while the other spouse remains a non-believer. Thus, they are in a mixed marriage. And Paul's answer to that question is, as long as the unbelieving spouse stays, you stay. As long as they'll consent to live with you, you stay. Why? Because the faithfulness of a believer in that situation might have a redemptive or an evangelistic effect on the unbelieving spouse. So don't think just because you're in a mixed marriage that you have an out clause at this point. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him or her leave. The brother or sister, the innocent, quote fingers, party here, is not under bondage in such cases because God has called us to live at peace. Now, I'll do this twice in what follows. There are two places, two of these exceptions, where there are some interpretive issues at play and where godly, Bible-believing, high-view-of-Scripture people disagree. And where it is going to be vitally important that you are involved in church, that you're asking good questions. One of those interpretive issues is what does free mean here? Does free mean if the unbelieving spouse leaves that I'm free to divorce and remarry because God has called us to live at peace? Certainly, this encourages or suggests that kingdom citizens are never the ones who are initiating or pursuing divorce. But if the abandoning spouse leaves and issues a certificate of divorce, does that mean that I'm free to divorce and remarry? Or does it merely mean that I'm free from the guilt and the daily responsibility of marital obligations? And that the proper posture in such case is to remain unmarried and pray for reconciliation. For example, this scenario. An unbelieving spouse deserts her husband, but later becomes a Christian herself. However, in the meantime, the believing spouse, the innocent party, has remarried. Well then, in that case, it's actually the abandoned spouse who makes reconciliation impossible in that scenario. So many would suggest that the most God-honoring posture, even in this scenario, is to remain single, pray that God would re-bring the marriage back together, pray for that spouse, continue to lean into the relationship. Regardless, though, of the interpretive issue of what free means, note, this is a very small subset of married individuals. It would only apply to those who are believers and are deserted by an unbelieving spouse. It is far from an out clause 
for those who are in difficult marriages and cite irreconcilable differences. This is a very small subset. In our passage this morning, it seems that Jesus suggests one other act that breaks the marriage covenant, meaning that divorce and remarriage would be an option for kingdom citizens seeking to live in faithfulness to God. He says, except in the case of adultery, or in some of your translations, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now, what's interesting about this exception is that the other gospel writers don't mention it. In fact, the subject of divorce and remarriage comes up in both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, and there, there is no exception in the case of sexual immorality or adultery. For example, in Mark 10, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Period. That's it. There's no except. But in Matthew's gospel, there is in both places, except in the case of sexual immorality or except in the case of adultery. Now, we'll attempt to tease this out just a bit this morning, though a sermon will not give us uh, all the time that we need to nuance it appropriately. But a word of caution is needed at the outset of this exception. This exception, whatever it is and whatever you do with it, is first and foremost not a mandate. It is not a mandate. Even in the case of adultery, even in the case of ongoing persistent sexual sin, there is no God-ordained mandate that the couple must divorce. There is no question that adultery violates the covenant. There is no question that it is a brutal process of reconciliation and restoration after that fact. But it does not de facto separate the covenant. If that were the case, if, if adultery, if sexual sin in that fashion actually severed the tie, then there would actually be no need for a person to formally seek divorce because the guilty spouse would have already broken the bond. If adultery actually broke the bond, then reconciliation of a couple after an adulterous affair would actually require remarriage. That's not what's happening here. But adultery can sever the covenant. But can, can adultery sever, sever the covenant? In Jesus' day, there were two dominant schools of thought on this issue, both interacting with Moses' treatment in Deuteronomy 24. You remember the phrase there, the husband finds some indecency in his wife. He can put her away. The schools of thought didn't agree on what some indecency meant. One dominant school of thought said some indecency was adultery. That was the ground for putting her away. She commits adultery, that's the sum indecency, divorce is an option. The other school of thought said that sum indecency was, well, basically anything. <laughs> On the one hand, you have the sum indecency. I'll actually read the quote. The school of Shammai say a man may not divorce his wife unless, she, unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written, because he has found her indecency in anything. And the other school, Hillel, says divorce is allowable for the husband even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it's written, because he hath found some indecency in anything. So the question is, what's some indecency? Can I put her away if she's had an affair? 
or if she spoiled my meat. Thus, the Pharisees are asking Jesus' opinion on the issue of divorce. They're asking him to give a technical interpretation of Moses' teaching on this topic as recorded in Matthew, he says, except for adultery. Now here, there are three dominant options. Again, prominent, God-fearing, high view of Scripture, theologians come down to different places on this issue. Some suggest that the reason that Matthew's gospel includes this clause while the others don't is some specific situation that was only true for the Jewish audience. Many suggesting that uh, the betrothal period was in view here. What was happening in Joseph and Mary's case, some indecency during this period while they're waiting to be married, and during that time before the marriage is solidified, if sexual sin is discovered in the parties, then divorce might be warranted. This is meant for sexual sin in the betrothal period, but it's not intended to be a statement regarding adultery once the couple is actually married. The challenge here is that that interpretation is largely an argument from silence. We don't have a unanimous voice saying that to be true. It's merely scholars saying, well, it shows up in a gospel that's primarily written to a Jewish audience after this discussion of Mary and Joseph's scenario with sexual sin, pre-marriage. Perhaps this is what's going on. Because clearly God wants, even in the case of adultery, for a relationship to be lifelong and permanent. Others suggest that adultery is an exception, meaning that both divorce and remarriage are allowable, meaning here, there, without sin, for the offended party. There are cases, say these scholars, when after a time of seeking reconciliation, it is clear that the offender has moved on, and there the offended person may pursue or accept divorce as an option and remarry. The question then, why is this not mentioned in Mark and Luke? Some suggest that perhaps it was so common, so commonly thought that, well, clearly adultery violates the covenant, so clearly this would be grounds for divorce and remarriage. A challenge with this perspective, though, is we're still left without clear counsel on when and how long this can take place. What defines adultery? Is it, I mean, we're coming off the heels of Jesus just saying, any man who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her heart. So does that mean porn? If my husband's looked at porn, does that mean grounds is open for divorce? That's certainly sexual immorality. Is that what Jesus is meaning here? It's also curious that in the original language, Jesus changes some words here. He uses different words, in fact. In Matthew 5, the language shifts. I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except for unchastity, sexual immorality, makes her commit, and then he says, adultery. Well, if it were adultery, why didn't Jesus say if, any, if he commits adultery then makes her commit adultery. Why use a different word there? What's, what's going on? And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The same word shift plays out in Matthew 19. Except for, and there Jesus uses the word porneia, except for sexual immorality, where we get pornography. 
and marries another woman, then he commits adultery, and there he shifts the word. So we're left to our own me-centered perspective of what defines us, what constitutes it, how many times, what's the context, is it once, is it repeated, who defines that? It's interesting for us that even in Joseph's case, when it was perceived that this was playing out, because we have a kid, don't know what happened, that Jesus trusted, uh, that Joseph trusted God's word over his perception of the scenario and stayed. That there was a permanence, there was a stick even in the face of the assumption of adultery in the betrothal view. Or thirdly, adultery is an allowable exception for legal divorce in certain situations. But remarriage is never allowable because the legal divorce does not sever the covenant of marriage in the eyes of God. Let me say that a bit, kind of off notes for you for a minute, just capture the heart of what's being said there. That some would suggest that in a sin-ravished, broken world, that the parameters of Moses giving a certificate of divorce, that there are scenarios and cases where legal divorce is necessary, perhaps to protect children in scenarios of abuse. But even in those cases where legal divorce may be necessitated, The covenant in the eyes of God is irrevocable this side of death. Thus, any remarriage is adulterous because the marriage relationship is still true in the eyes of God. Thus, some would suggest that divorce is the least bad of bad alternatives in light of a sin-saturated divorce. And we might have to pursue it in certain cases, but the divorced one should patiently and prayerfully wait and allow God the freedom to restore the marriage and put the relationship back together once more. Now, regardless of where you land on this issue and what conclusions you make, I want you to notice the disciples' conclusion in verse 10. Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, so this is after Jesus' conclusion, exception clause included, except for sexual immorality, except for adultery, divorces her, makes her commit adultery. How did the disciples respond? The disciples said, if this is the case of a man and a woman, it's better not to marry. Okay. (laughs) Their shock reveals to us, or should reveal to us, that whatever Jesus was doing was clearly taking a vastly more conservative posture than they even assumed. Now, one wonders, with these two dominant schools of thought, adultery is a grounds for divorce, burning toast is a ground for divorce. Obviously, they're going to assume burning toast is probably out for Jesus, right? The assumption would be adultery is where he's going to land. Their shock reveals, at least to me, that Jesus probably landed even further on the right of this issue of adultery than the dominant rabbinical school of thought of his day. One wonders if they would have been shocked if the rabbi had landed in the same position as 
the dominant school of thought of his day, that adultery is a grounds for divorce. At minimum, it seems that he at least pressed against their assumption that adultery was an easy out card that could be played at any point one chooses. And it should reveal to us that we should feel some sense of shock when we interact with Jesus' view of these subjects. If what we've discussed this morning isn't a bit jarring to you, perhaps it is because we don't have a high enough view of the permanence of the marriage covenant. In a culture awash with divorce and remarriage, we need to rightly be shocked by the commitment that God calls for for a husband and wife, one man, one woman, and one woman, lifelong permanence. While the stat is vastly overstated and divorce is not as common among practicing Christians, it is still far too common in the church. And the shockingly high view of Jesus' perspective on divorce and remarriage should give us pause for at least five responses that I want to suggest to you as we end this morning. First, this perspective is meant to be jarring for those of you who have not yet entered into a lifelong marriage commitment. And it should cause you to make wise, God-honoring decisions about the person that you marry Emotions, a drive for sexual fulfillment, the individualism in our choice of a spouse often leads us to unwise choices that bring a lifetime of horrific consequences. College students, listen to me clearly. It is better to be lonely and single than in a marriage that you hate. Be patient. Wait. Trust God. Don't rush it. Lean into your church. Make wise decisions. Because till death do us part is meant to mean till death do us part. Period. Secondly, we are to reject guilt, shame, and condemnation over past sin on our part. If the high perspective of God regarding divorce and remarriage jars you because of your past sin, you need to be reminded this morning that divorce or remarriage is not the scarlet letter, nor is it the unpardonable sin in the church. Premarital sexual immorality, lust, and the like all expose to us all our desperate need for the grace of God. Those of you who have divorced in your eyes rightly at the time, perhaps now you say, I'm not sure anymore, remarried following that, you should be treated like all the rest of us, sinners in need of the lavish grace of God. There is only one unpardonable sin, and remarriage is not it. 
There is room at the cross for all of us who have failed in these areas. We repent of sin, we claim the Father's forgiveness, and experience the joy that he longs to give his people, even if you've blown it in these areas. Thirdly, this passage is meant to press into you. If you are here and you are in the midst of wrestling with divorce and remarriage, And I would suggest to you this morning that you should, as a response to the text, be willing to make wise, counter-cultural decisions in your current situation. Those of you who are in a hard marriage right now, reject the lie that things can't change. Press against the siren song that you deserve better fundamentally throw the word divorce out of the room as a threat when things get hard. Shift your focus as a place to put the supreme love of God on display. Clearly, I am not suggesting that you stay in a situation where you are being sexually, physically, emotionally abused. There are places and times when you need to get out, when you have to separate. Separation does not necessitate divorce. I'm not saying make decisions that are going to put you in harm's way, but I am suggesting that you press against the temptation to cash in your chips and get out when things get hard. Every one of us in the room who is in a marriage is in a hard marriage. Every one of us, because we are all sinners who are hard to love. And so you press against that, you lean into countercultural decisions in your current situation. Fourthly, lean into your church community and pursue those who are making bad decisions. Both and. If you're in a scenario where you've got a but what about that is particularly daunting and intimidating, Lean into your church community. Reject the individualism that says you're going to determine when enough is enough. Even if you side in the camp that says adultery is grounds for divorce, do that in the community of the people that God has blessed you with in a local church who can help you navigate a scenario where if you are in the midst of something that painful, you are not going to see it clearly. You have to have external observers who can lean into that with you. And here, this is is a primary place where meaningful membership in the local church matters. Because it is our responsibility to enter into burden-bearing relationships with those who are in difficult marriages, and particularly those who are the offenders in these cases and have bailed on their marriage commitments. It is up to us in the church to know those relationships and to pursue them with the relentless grace of God and beg them to return to their marriage commitment. It is an overwhelmingly sad statement on God's church, that far too often divorce happens and a couple just leaves and goes and does their own thing. Friends, that's why we're a part of one another. That we, in a very real way, we are a part of each other's marriages. 
and you got a couple of hundred other people that are fencing your marriage for you, saying, we're going we're gonna to make sure this thing is a lifelong permanent commitment, and we're not going to let you out. We're going to press with you. And then lastly, what do you do if you've blown it? What do you do if you're in a situation that doesn't seem to square with biblical teaching? Remain faithful in your present situation. What should you do if remarriage has already taken place? The answer is remain where you are. Another divorce is not the solution to your problems. Case of adultery or murder or polygamy, God chose to bless the nation of Israel and all humanity through the line of people like Solomon, even though David's marriage to Bathsheba was birthed in deep sin. This is a testimony to the redeeming grace of God that in spite of sinful choices can bring grace and beauty and hope. This is not an affirmation of the sin that took place in the first place. An excellent, joy-filled remarriage after divorce should never be considered as an affirmation that the preceding divorce was right. But it should be a testimony to you of the lavish grace of God that in spite of sin, he can do for you what he did for Joseph, what man tended for harm. God purposed for good. God is a gracious, loving, kind God who can, even in the face of remarriages that are outside of the scriptural norm, can bring joy and beauty and purpose there. So lean in. Be faithful. Remain faithful in your present situation because, as we have spread out for us this morning, we have a God who's demonstrated that for us. We have a God who is faithful to his covenant promises to stay in a hard marriage to you if you are here and you're in Christ. Imagine the scenario if spiritual adultery was an out for God. We would be long since done. But God sets a model for covenant faithfulness by a sticky love, an ever-faithful love that pursues us even when we're really hard to love. Can't we? as those who have received such great forgiveness, give that same kind of sticky love to the spouse that God has so graciously given us. May that be true of kingdom citizens at the church at Cherrydale, that divorce and remarriage would be rejected and we would lean into faithful covenant love as a model of Christ and his church.